Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast. Dan Hasler here with you from Cut Through Coaching, and in this episode, I'm going to share with you an interview I had with Sir Ken Robinson, the world-renowned author and creativity expert. This interview was recorded back in 2018 and was originally broadcast on my semi-regular spot on the Teachers Education Review uh, podcast. And I thought that given he's uh, returning to our shores next week, um, as it stands in early June 2019, next week for the Edutech conference, I thought that some of the Habits uh, audience might enjoy hearing what he had to say on a variety of issues, ranging obviously from education, uh, but also what it's like um, to be in the spotlight in the way that um, Ken is as one of the most watched, if not the most watched, TED Talk speaker of all time and author of a few different best-selling books. What it's like when you're in that public eye and... um, you know, people take issue with some of the things you had to say. I kicked off our talk reflecting on the fact that it was been about a decade since his talk, his TED talk, "Do Schools Kill Creativity?" went uh, live on the on on the web. And I was wondering, whilst probably recognizing that his life has changed probably significantly since that talk, to what extent had he seen other changes in education or perhaps even further afield? Um, as a result of that talk or in some way related to that talk? Well, um, it, it has had a, a big impact. I think there's no question about that. I mean, it's, you know, it's been seen online about what, just over 50 million times now. Uh, but I know it's been seen by a lot more people than that. You know, that's the number of times the button's been clicked. Mm. And it, it's not all me. It, it wasn't me doing that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have family and relatives. Yeah, of course. They've been, work, of they've been working day and night. <laughs> Arthritis of the fingers is a terrible thing once you get it. <laughs> but it's, but you know, get, you know, it gets shown at conferences and events, mm. workshops, on programs and courses. So, you know, I mean, whatever multiple you think is reasonable, maybe five or ten times that number mm. wouldn't be far wrong. I don't think. Um, and they say that because it's also been seen in 160 countries. So, the, the it's one piece of evidence for the impact. But it's not. To me, what's interesting about it is clearly it's it's had that effect because it resonates. And I know it's an entertaining talk, mm. but if it were just funny, there's a lot of funny stuff on the internet. Mm. Uh, it, it's because I think people find it truthful. It resonates with their experience. I know that because I get people approaching me about it all the time. You know, we're here in Melbourne. I had a succession of people last night coming up and saying, head teachers saying, we've changed our entire school around. Mm. You know, we've applied these principles. We've read the books that, that you've written around it all. And kids who come up and, and they said, I've, my last moved in an entirely different direction as a result of it. We ran our own survey uh, in uh, 2016, yeah, called 10 Years On. Yeah, I remember. And we got hundreds and hundreds. We said, you know, what impact has this talk had on you? Yeah. We had hundreds of replies from people saying the same thing. You know, we've shifted our school district around. So it's hard to draw a straight line. I think it's empowered people. It's sort of given them permission in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people would say, I thought I was the only person thinking this. Right. Or it's certainly how often people come and say, you know, this is my story. Mm. You were talking about me uh, or my child or, you know, my, my family in, in some way. Um, so my experience of it is that that has had a big influence because it's 
given people say, uh, permission. But it's not the only thing that's going on. I mean, I'm always keen to say, I mean, I wasn't invented at TED. and. Yeah. And I wasn't making this stuff up. I was there because I've been around education a long time and there have always been schools doing these sorts of things. The problem has been to get it into the mainstream uh, for people not to feel it's eccentric. And there are wonderful schools. There have always been wonderful schools. I think there is a shift that's happening now, which that talk has helped to articulate, that more and more people are realising that this is the way things ought to move, whatever the difficulties might be in, in making that happen. You know, we're, we're here in... Australia, there's a whole network of future schools. There are organisations of teachers who are pushing for change. There are parents uh, around the world who are pushing against the, the uh, impact of standardised testing. Mm. Kids who are pulling away from school and looking for alternatives. Mm. It is, there is a, a tidal shift happening. There's yeah. no question in my I mind think, about it. Yeah, I think homeschooling is probably, the, in terms of rates of people, the growing population. I mean, it's not you know massive yet, but the actual rate of people increase, you know, increasing numbers in homeschooling is one of the, the growth areas in terms of education here. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to say they're not huge numbers yet, but no. it's growing and it's significant. Mm. But the other thing as well is that um, governments are shifting. I mean, for example, South Korea uh, a year or so ago announced that they were taking their foot off the pedal of testing and the mm. way it's been kind of pressed to the metal Singapore for such a long time. Yeah. Singapore, yeah, I'm involved with a consortium of countries called the Atlantic Rim Collaboratory with Andy Hargreaves and Patsy Solberg who are determined to try and make this shift as well. Mm. Uh, you know, China is talking about having to promote a, a more creative approach to education and I mean obviously there's a big hill to climb for everybody in doing this mm. but uh, but also one of the, the things that I was been pushing back against is that a lot of these pressures of standardisation and, and testing have been inflicted on education systems by governments in what they believe to be the interests of the economy. Mm. And when I speak to businesses, which I do a lot, as you do, I'm constantly being told by them what we know to be true that is that these systems are not producing people with the skills and competencies they need to make their way in the world that's changed as quickly as it is and in the way that it is. So it's interesting too, isn't it, that the World Economic Forum mm. has recently published a report about the need to promote creativity and yeah. critical thinking and collaboration and, and community. I mean, all the stuff that we know about. Mm. But all these are signals that at the at very different levels, from community action groups, from uh, people self-organizing to international think tanks and governments, people are picking up that there is a need for shift here and are starting to shift. It, yeah. It's never... A, easy, trouble-free or straightforward, but it's, it is happening. Mm. And it's interesting, that you, so we're talking about the shift there, but it's also notable for me, I think, um, I, I, because I'm from, and we're both obviously from the UK, I, I keep one eye on what's happening in the UK, because typically, and this is a little bit flippant, but typically what happens in the UK tends to filter down into Australia uh, about 10 years later, roughly. Um, and at the moment, what I'm seeing in the UK is uh, quite a strident push Towards the kind of no excuses, the you know very highly disciplined, um, almost, and I don't I don't know if this is the case, but almost the antithesis of what you might talk about. And and if I was to be provocative about it, you know, sometimes, and I'm sure you're not immune to this, but sometimes they set themselves up in direct opposition to you. Um, and and I know that you spoke about why um, dance is as important as mathematics, and I mean I can imagine. In general, some people might go really, but some people really take hold of your stand and stance. And I guess you know, 
use it as a lever and saying, look, this is th- that's rubbish. This is what we need. I, I, was, I was really struck by the story you told yesterday of your wife who worked in, in the 70s in Liverpool mm-hmm. about the kids. And I just wondered if you could just talk for a moment about the... the the juxtaposition, if you like, between the experiences of kids in Liverpool at that time compared to the kids, say, in, I don't know, South London at the moment, who might be um, not just there, but across Australia, where people are going in and saying, actually, what you need is um, you all need to walk in a straight line, in silence, never interrupt a teacher. Um, if, if you come to, there's one school, I'm, I, there's one school that has a policy that if you feel sick and you come to school, we'll give you a bucket. Hmm. I'm curious, if, if, you know, just your thoughts on that, and if you could just talk around that, particularly in light of the fact, well, you, you know, there are other ways, particularly with these hard knock areas. Yeah, yes, it's a curious conception of compassion, that isn't it? If you feel mm. sick, we'll give you a bucket. Mm. I mean, thank you. Mm. <laughs> Lovely move. Mm. The reason I'm saying it's not going to be straightforward or easy or trouble free is that at the national level, most governments. I can't, it's a generalisation to say most, but very many mm. governments still don't get it. And they're pushing on with the testing regime. I'm giving examples of the ones who are rethinking it. Mm. Um, there's no real evidence I can see that at the government level in, in, in England, it's, it's, it's important not to generalise about the UK these days because mm. the systems in Scotland, Wales and uh, Northern Ireland are different. But in England, the EBAC and the continuing pressure of testing um, there's no clear indication that, as a whole, the government understands the need for these sorts of shifts. On, on the contrary, mm. uh, there is, as you say, a pretty hardened group of people uh, in the sense that they're, you know, they are mutually supportive around a common agenda, which they're pretty vigorous about promoting, who absolutely disagree with what I'm talking about. Mm. I mean, often kind of vehemently. Yeah. yeah, and some of it you know, becomes kind of personalised you mm. know I mean I get sort of ad personam attacks as if mm. you know I'm the kind of devil incarnate mm. and, and peddling snake oil is Absolutely. what one uh, one of the uh, comments I read mm. uh, I hear other people say you know I don't know anything about education mm. and uh, and I think well really mm. I mean I have been working in it for over 40 years mm. so I, and I <laughs> have uh, you know worked all around the world in all kinds of systems and well you have to be a an event like we had yesterday, you know, where we had 2,000 teachers agreeing, broadly speaking, with you mm. know, what I'm saying, and feeling as as people in the field who are professionals that taking this sort of path has much better results, much higher levels of engagement, and is more conducive to the lives that kids are actually going to lead mm. uh, from the front line. Mm. But you're right, I mean, there are people, there always have been people who take a very counter view. I first got involved in education professionally uh, when I left college in 1972. And around that time, there was a publication of a famous set of papers in the UK called The Black Papers on Education. You know, as a take on the idea of a white paper. And it was Mm -hmm. a group of, broadly speaking, right-leaning academics and politicians who took issue. So... That there's always been, um, for as long as we can remember, you know, pretty deep conflicts about this, and it's often characterised as a an antipathy between so-called traditional education and 
progressive education. There, had, there was a whole movement you know, in the 19th and 20th centuries uh, on behalf of progressive, or as I prefer to think of it, holistic education. That's to say, education approaches, and there are plenty of examples you give, like Montessori and Friebel and, and the rest, and Dewey, uh, which were emphasising to engage the whole child physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually, as well as cognitively. And there have always been people who thought, firstly, that it's, it's not really the business of schools to get involved in those mm. sorts of things, or that the real purpose of education is the transmission of knowledge uh, of a particular sort, normally defined as uh, propositional knowledge, you know, knowledge that something is the case, uh, and broadly knowledge which is consistent with, with a particular view of cultural values. Mm. And... The, 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 it, the argument ranges quite widely over teaching methodologies, for example. Some people believe that direct instruction is always, and in most situations, the best approach. And uh, Others believe that it's important that children are involved practically in determining their own path. So these are always heated and mm. complex issues. Um, for my own part, I think that, as I've, I've said in the past, you know, I'm perfectly prepared to argue with people about things I actually think hmm. and have said. What I find here is, latterly, that, you know, insofar as, I mean, you asked the question about, about how people are responding to what I do, uh, I mean, there have been a number of people who've taken upon themselves to uh, present ideas they either think I have promulgated hmm. or imagine I might promulgate and then attack those ideas. Hmm. Well... In a lot of cases, they're attacking the position I've never held. It's mm. a completely straw man argument. Yeah. For example, uh, I read something recently that was pointing out you know, that creativity... It, it was sort of saying, what I don't seem to realise is that creativity uh, involves discipline and knowledge. Mm. And then what I'm arguing for uh, doesn't understand or respect the place of, of, of either. Mm. And I think, well, where on earth did you ever get that idea from? Yeah. I've never said that, never. Uh, in fact, one of the things I always find ironic is that some of these people who uh, seem to believe that I'm attacking academic standards show no academic rigor of their own whatever. They mm. haven't bothered to read the books I've written. They haven't bothered to read the reports I've been involved in where I say the exact opposite for the most part, that yeah. creativity, for example, depends upon mm. all the very things they accuse me of denying. It's hard to be creative in an area which you don't, Never, yeah. never suggested <laughs> and, and, and yeah. people say you know that I'm just advocating for the expressive arts mm. and you know I published a report in 1982 mm. which talked about the relationship between you know, expressive activities creative activities rigour knowledge and understanding yeah. so yeah, a, a part of the problem I think is that these arguments are often driven by ideology and and uh, and so far from there being an actual conversation or debate, people are taking positions against what they, as you're asking about me, what they imagine I'm attacking. Mm. And if they took the trouble to be as rigorous academically as they want other people to be, mm. then we might have a different conversation about it. Mm. But there are other things that factor in. You know, when you talk about these, these like zero-tolerance mm. uh, approaches, you know, the fact is that you, know, you, can, you can find a case to justify pretty any sort of behaviour. Yeah, I mean, if you tell kids to stand still and not speak and don't vomit, you know, unless there's a bucket, and um, and walk in silence, you'll, you'll get them to comply. Mm. Um, it's not what I would choose to. I, mm. I can tell you, you know, 
dozens of other examples where people take a much more, um, I would consider to be a more humane approach to getting kids to work together to develop self-respect. But, you know, pe- that people I know work with who dealing with young offenders who've been in very traumatic situations in their lives and are working hard to put themselves back together. In the end, you, it, it's not about methodology, it's about ethics. It's about your view of humanity and what sort of people you want to... Um, what sort of talents and abilities and qualities you want to cultivate? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, that some some approaches work well for some things. I mean, I went to a grammar school. I've never argued against yeah. the value of academic education. You've got people. a PhD. Yeah, I, I've got a PhD. <laughs> yeah. I, I was a university professor. I write yeah. books for God's sake. Yeah. You know, I I love academic work and I love the work of academics and I love academics for the mm. most part. I, I'm fascinated by them, mm. but. That's no reason to suppose that that's the ultimate measure of all forms of human achievement or engagement. Mm. I just happen to enjoy it, and some people do. Mm. Um, but the fact, you know, saying that, being like in sport, you know, saying that, you know, th- there's only really one sport that truly matters. I mean, pick your sport, you know, lacrosse or. Well, no, there is only one sport that matters. I understand that. I understand what I'm saying, Dan. Yeah, I mean, I think that. Depends right. which city you're in, of course, but <laughs> yeah. there is only one sport that matters. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> But yeah, I get I get the point. Yeah. I'm I'm wondering um, just two more things to talk about if that's possible. Yeah, yeah. The first one being, um, and I, I don't want to keep going down this 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 path necessarily, but I'm going to keep going. Down. The one of the arguments or one of the way they the, the people who might be in opposition try and corral, or I believe try and corral support is by saying he's attacking the teachers, and then isn't it strange all these teachers are clapping the man who's attacking the teachers? Now I've heard you many times say I'm not talking about teaching I'm talking about the system and I just wonder if you could just draw that out briefly like what do you mean when because aren't teachers the system or are you talking about a different conception of of what the system actually is I've never anywhere in writing in person in public or private ever attacked teachers Hmm. ever on the contrary it's another one of those examples if if any of these people who think I'm doing that took the trouble to read anything I'd written rather than make some assumption based on an 18-minute talk I gave mm. 10 years ago mm. <laughs> and then ran off forming their own conclusions, uh, they, they, would, they, they would have no basis for thinking that. Mm. I've said repeatedly that teachers are the heart of the system, that the big problem has been that governments and latterly... I mean, there, there have, there's been a reason why we had a standards movement. There were problems in education. There's no question about it. Mm. There's no question that standards in certain areas needed to be improved. I ran the Arts and Schools Project in the 1980s before the national curriculum came in and it was because uh, schools left to their own devices I didn't feel were many people felt they weren't giving proper a properly balanced curriculum there were all kinds of problems uh, from that point of view there were certainly issues around literacy and numeracy there's no question about that um, and I think anybody who was around educated time will know it's not as if these debates only started when standardized mm-hmm. testing came in it happened for a reason, but it was the wrong strategy, the wrong approach. And and what I've always argued is that governments have tended to focus on uh, trying to standardise the curriculum and on testing, standardised testing, uh, in order to make people toe the line. It's been a compliance strategy. And the only way you can really raise standards in education is by energising and engaging students and empowering and trusting teachers. Yeah. It's the only way it works. And I've never deviated from that. And I know teach. I, mean, I, I know. I mean, we're here. To, you know, we're here at a conference of two thousand teachers and head teachers, and they know that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. And I have run school-based projects. I've worked with schools, school districts. I've spent my whole life working in education, 
with and on behalf of teachers. Mm-hmm. You know, I qualify to teach. I have taught in universities. I've worked in schools. I don't know where people get this idea from. That, I, that, that in fact, on the contrary, I keep saying you can't improve education by making it teacher-proof. It's totally the wrong way around. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the 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 reason I get such a response from teachers is because they know that. I mean, I'm really trying to speak on their behalf in insofar as I've got a platform to do it. You know, I'm yeah. just trying to amplify what I know to be true. Yeah. So no, I think I think that's um, it's a kind of um, cynical ploy I think either either it's, it's born out of genuine ignorance of what I'm talking about mm. or it's a cynical ploy to try and get teachers to dissociate themselves from what I'm saying mm. and, and I wouldn't you know I wouldn't say that's, that's an impossible idea because there are some politicians who just don't like what I'm talking about mm. there's some people on the right centre and far right who don't like this because mm. they, they naturally veer towards a more authoritarian stance uh, they also believe, you know, for, for good enough reasons of their own, that for the things they're interested in, you know, the teacher at the front doing direct instruction and, you know, focusing on propositional knowledge, uh, they believe is the most effective way to get people to learn things. And I've never said it's not an effective way to learn mm. some things. Yeah. It's just that education is more than learning what is the case. It's more than mastering cognitive skills. It's about a whole range of other things. Practical abilities, social abilities, emotional dispositions and all the rest. And God knows... Kids are facing enough stress and terror as it is that we simply can't afford to ignore these other areas, which are equally important. And for that, you need a multiplicity of approaches and styles. Yeah. And, and so just to finish that, because I think this brings it beautifully, I was having a beer with a mate of mine, uh, Tom Barrett, he's Melbourne-based, and I was saying, oh, I'm chatting to Ken next week, and he said, oh, I'd love to ask him this question. I said, well, I will ask him this question. <laughs> and and what, what Tom's question was, he said, I'd love to know what Ken holds to be true about learning irrespective of the time. So whether it's industrial revolution times, whether it's the digital age, different cultures, is there a like a universal truth about learning, not necessarily educational schools, but learning in general? Well, you know, I, I, you probably know, I, I just, I, I know you know, maybe he might know. I've just published a book for parents mm. on education. Nice it's, segue. Thank you. <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs> Everyone, it's called You, Your Child in School. But it's, I ought to say, it's not a book about how to be a great parent. I mean, I, I wouldn't have the nerve. I mean, I've got, I've got two kids with internet connections, so... <laughs> but, uh, no, I know how complex it is. I mean, I'm not lining up to be a tiger mum or a Dr. Mm. Spock. But education is a complex, complex in the field, and I get asked all the time by parents about what the right thing is to do. Mm. So I thought it would be reasonable, you know, from the experience I've had, to try and set something down that could be helpful to them. Mm. Um, but I start the book with a distinction between learning, education, and school. Mm. And learning is what this is about. I mean, this, the most direct way I can think of, of saying it is that learning is the process of acquiring new skills and understanding. And you don't need any formal training to do any of that. I mean, learning is a very natural process. Human beings are inherently and vigorously curious. You've only got to look at how babies develop in the very early stages. Now I was talking about the example of mm. kids learning to speak and nobody teaches them how to do that. Mm. We are inherently curious and inquisitive and learning comes naturally to us and look at the consequence. We, we're the most uh, connected, social and collaborative species you know, uh, outside of some insects mm. in terms of yeah. collaboration that you can imagine we have built vastly complex cultures, technologies, stores, repositories of knowledge, understanding, shared ideas, um, and it's all based on this growing uh, collective reservoir of knowledge and understanding. 
And learning, in other words, comes naturally to us. We, we have an appetite for it. Education, I think, has a more uh, organised approach to learning, a more systematic approach mm-hmm. to it. And for most of us, the experience we have of that is the, the formal education system, you know, K through 12. School is a community of learners. But we've come to think of schools in particular ways because they've evolved in certain sorts of ways. My experience of it is, I think most people would have the same, is that kids love to learn. They don't all get on with education. Some have a very hard time with school. Mm. And it's not because they don't want to learn. It's because school doesn't help them. Mm. So the answer is not to fix kids. It's to fix schools. Mm. So when I say that, um, that there's a problem with the system, it is true that we are the system. Um, at the same time, the system obviously has built-in habits and constraints. It, I mean, I know you do a lot of work around mindset mm. and work with Carol Dweck. And part of my argument, I quote Carol's work in, in the book I did, Creative Schools, is that uh, systems can... Uh, human systems, they're, they're you know, what they call complex adaptive mm. systems. It, they're not a fixed structure. They, 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 these aren't uh, inanimate systems. They don't obey the laws of physics. They, they are governed by conventions and habits, and they can shift. Mm-hmm. So if people in the system themselves feel the system is inflexible, the system is inflexible. Mm-hmm. But if they can see beyond the current habit and change the way they think and change how they behave, the system starts to change. And there are pressures in the system, often from testing and the downward pressure, which make it difficult for schools to do that, but, it not, but not impossible. And if you have a visionary head teacher, if you have visionary teachers, if you have an engaged community, you can shift this. There's a lot of room to, for movement in the system, as it is. But my argument is we should be basing it, that these changes, on what we understand about the natural compassion, to, natural impulse to learn, mm. and how learning operates. And it, it operates through, through curiosity, through hard work. But hard work is, is most often inspired by a passion to get something done and to get results of your own, rather than... It's a basic point that Karen and other people make about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. You can make people do things with extrinsic motivation. You can threaten them, punish them, say... you know, Reward them, whatever. You can reward them, yeah, you can give them all of that. Mm. Um, And you do get results from doing that. Mm. Um, Or you can uh, kindle their intrinsic desire to learn so they're impelling themselves to do it. And there's some balance to be struck between all of that, but... But the, but the foundation for the changes we ought to see has to be rooted in the deeper understanding of how learning works. Yeah. So, Ken, it's always a treat to catch up with you. Thank yeah. you so much for giving up so much time for That's the podcast. That's a real pleasure, Ken, always. And, uh, yeah, yeah, next time we're in Australia, hope to cross Absolutely. paths again. Uh, Thank thanks you. for all you do. I hear great things about it all the time. So well, thank it's you. very kind of you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> we should probably record it now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm working on it. That's true, for real. So Ken Robinson will be back in Australia in the first week of June speaking at the Edutech conference where I'm fortunate enough to be facilitating a panel discussion with him as well as um, Parsi Salberg, uh, Jennifer Buckingham and Michelle Michael from the New South Wales Department of Education. I always enjoy catching up with Ken and uh, I'm really looking forward to doing so again next week. If you enjoyed or found these uh, podcasts worthwhile then please do um, like them share them subscribe uh, rate them and leave a comment because it really does make um, quite a difference to us as we're putting out these podcasts here 
And if you have any questions um, that, or perhaps suggestions for guests who you'd like to hear on the Habits of Leadership podcast, then head over to habitsofleadership.com and uh, click on the podcast page there. And that's where you can find all the information and ways of getting in contact with us here. But until next time, thank you very much for listening and take care and take it easy.